0: Welcome to the podcast, How to Be Well and Strong. I'm your host, Jacqueline Genova, and I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with some of the leading figures in the fields of wellness, integrative medicine, and mental health as we discover what it truly means to be well and strong in both body and mind. Get ready to be empowered, inspired, and motivated about being an advocate for your own health. Despite an abundant food supply, research indicates that Americans are significantly deficient in many critical nutrients. Several factors are responsible for the well-fed but undernourished epidemic sweeping the nation, including a high intake of processed foods, declining levels of nutrients in our soils, and the increasing prevalence of chronic health conditions that influence nutrient needs. Join me in today's episode as I speak with Chris Kresser about why so many of us are nutrient deficient and what to do about it. Chris Kresser is the co-founder of the California Center for Functional Medicine, the founder of Kresser Institute, the host of the top-ranked health podcast, Revolution Health Radio, the creator of chriscresser.com, and the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Cure and Unconventional Medicine. He's one of the most respected clinicians and educators in the fields of functional medicine and ancestral health, and has trained over 2,000 clinicians and health coaches from over 50 countries in his unique approach. Chris was named one of the 100 most influential people in health and fitness by Greatest.com and has appeared as a featured guest on Dr. Oz, Time, The Atlantic, NPR, Fox & Friends, and other national media outlets. He lives in Bend, Oregon with his wife and daughter. Chris, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to be chatting with you as I was just saying about the topic of nutrient deficiencies because I know this is kind of your bread and butter, so to speak. And it's definitely an area that affects us all and one that, in my opinion, is not necessarily given as much attention as it should be.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's um, low-hanging fruit, so to speak. And yeah, as I progressed in my career, I'm more and more interested in interventions that can make a difference for the greatest number of people at a relatively minimal cost. Um, especially when compared to things like one-on-one functional medicine work with which is amazing I'm a functional medicine clinician myself so of course I believe in that but it's um not accessible to a lot of people and so I've I've been thinking over many years about what are what are things that pretty much everybody could do and benefit from that would make a major difference in their health and maximizing nutrient intake is at the top of the list. And that's why I really uh, devoted this second half of my career to to that topic, because I think it's just so important. It can help so many different people in so many different circumstances.
0: I couldn't agree more, Chris. So let's get right into it. What is nutrient density and why are so many of us nutrient deficient?
1: Nutrient density refers to the concentration of nutrients in, in, a, in a given food. And specifically, it, ref, it refers to the concentration of micronutrients and amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein. So there's been a lot of discussion over the past 34 years on macronutrients, like should we do low-fat diet, low-carb diet, how much protein should we eat? And that's all very important for sure. But I think what's been left out of all of those discussions is nutrient density, micronutrient intake, how, how many vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients are you consuming? Uh, I think it goes without saying, but it, I, I like to point it out anyways, if you were to follow a low-fat diet that was completely devoid of nutrient, micronutrients or a low-carb diet that was completely devoid of micronutrients, you, you might achieve your body composition or weight loss goals for a short period of time, but you're going to cause a whole bunch of other problems in the process. And that's, you know, so and you look at pr- products on like, you know, on the Atkins diet, which is the early low-carb diet, it was only concerned with carbohydrate values. And there's all kinds of products like, you know, the low-carb tortillas and low-carb packaged food snacks and all kinds of garbage that was just supposed to be okay only because it didn't have carbohydrates. Doesn't matter if it didn't have any other nutrients that we need, as long as it was low in carbohydrates, it was fine. So I I think that's a danger of that kind of myopic focus on macronutrients and leaving out micronutrients, which again are mineral refer to vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients, and amino acids, because those are really the building blocks of every protein and enzyme in our body. And if we don't get enough of those, we suffer.
0: That makes sense. And also, too, Chris. So, one of the areas that I'm most passionate about is integrative oncology. And after the past decade or so of research, one thing I've consistently come across is the link between vitamin D deficiency and the increased likelihood for developing breast cancer, among tons of other chronic illnesses, as you're very aware of. So, with that, what are some of the other top nutritional deficiencies that you've seen in patients you've treated? and what are some of the chronic illnesses that they've been associated with?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there are, if you look at um, the Linus Pauling Institute out of Oregon State University, they're one of the organizations that have done the most work on micronutrient deficiencies. They have uh, great statistics. Um, they. They have data showing that about 99% of people are choline deficient, maybe 100%. Um, I'm sure there are a few who aren't out there. But choline is a is a really important um, constituent of cell membranes. So if you don't have enough choline, none of the cells are going to function well. And everything in the body is made up of cells. So that's going to cause problems with the nervous system and in the brain, particularly. So you can have sim- symptoms that mimic neurodegenerative disorders, You can have depression, anxiety, you can have um, motor or or gait problems, you can have all kinds of issues that are related to cellular physiology um, with choline deficiency, and so many people are suffering from that, so it's no surprise to see that those conditions are relatively common in the population. Um, Magnesium is probably around 95% of people don't get the optimal amount. And magnesium is needed for over 700 different enzymatic reactions in the body. So like choline, it, it's a nutrient that is needed ubiquitously throughout the body. Uh, it's almost easier to talk about things that magnesium is not involved in um, than, than things that magnesium is involved in. But I'll just give you a couple of examples. Of, uh, you know, in, in the scientific literature, it's very well established now that magnesium deficiency contributes to metabolic disorders. And we know that one in three Americans now has prediabetes, so they're on the road to diabetes. Um, uh, 70% are overweight and 40, over 40% are obese. So we are certainly suffering from an epidemic of metabolic disease. And, you know, it's not, not I'm not simplifying this to the point where we're saying correcting magnesium deficiency would eliminate that problem which is ridiculous but it could make a major impact in terms of the burden of those conditions and it's again something relatively easy to address vitamin D is probably between 90 95 percent of Americans don't get the optimal amount and I'll just take a little aside here and say I'm, I'm using the word the term optimal amount rather than deficiency because deficiency has sometimes a specific clinical, meaning which it refers to an acute deficiency that would cause an acute syndrome that might land you in the hospital so if we talk about like scurvy or rickets or beriberi or pellagra, these very serious diseases of acute vitamin or mineral deficiencies that most people in the, in the in the u.s don't and other developed countries don't deal with at this point but i th- but that's a really limited way of looking at nutrient status, right? Like most of us are trying to do more than just avoid dying from a, a, a nutrient deficiency. We want to avoid chronic disease, we want to live a long, healthy life, and the amount of a nutrient that's needed to do that is significantly higher than the amount that's just needed to avoid rickets or or scurvy. So That's what, when I say optimal amount, that's what I'm referring to is the amount that's needed for us to live a long, healthy life free of chronic disease.
0: To that point, Chris, I'm so glad you touched on that because I feel like too, when patients go to conventional doctors, right, and they run their panels and whatnot, their ranges vastly differ, right, from what a functional practitioner would test for. So if a patient is quote unquote within like the normal range of vitamin D, for example, from their conventional doctor's panel, they might actually be incredibly low, Right. So can you touch on the difference, too, in terms of ranges from a conventional versus a functional standpoint?
1: Yeah, it varies based on the nutrient. So um, but in general, you, you, you would say that the, the range, the conventional range is very broad and it's it's constructed based on studies looking at the levels of nutrients in a in a broad range of the population and making a, a bell curve. 95% reference range and if you're in, if you're within that bell curve if you're under the area of the curve there then you're normal. The problem with that though is that if you just take an average level of a particular nutrient in a population of people who are re- who are generally sick and mm-hmm. unwell then, then you're 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 using a sample size that is already behind the curve in, t- in terms of where you want to be for nutrient status, and taking the average of that sample size, which is a ridiculous way of doing it. And unfortunately, that is often the way it's done. Uh, there are other ways that um, you know the RDA is established, and and um, scientists use to determine the optimal nutrient amount, but almost always those methods are out of date and incomplete. So an example of that would be magnesium. Um, The RDA, uh, the recommended dietary allowance, is a formula that depends on several different variables, and one of them is body weight. And with magnesium, the RDA has not been updated since 1997. And at that point, the average body weight for uh, an adult female was 133 pounds, and it was 166 pounds for an adult male. But in 2021, researchers published a study saying, hey, wait a second, those average body weights are really different now for men and for women. And in fact, for women, they're now 169 pounds. So that's higher than the average body weight of a male in 1997. And for men, it's 196 pounds. So if you redo the formula for to create the RDA for magnesium, inputting the, the current body weights it goes up from uh 420 milligrams for men per day or 320 milligrams for women which it was in 1997 when it was last published to 650 milligrams a day for men and 530 milligrams a day for women so that's a 200 milligram per day difference in how much magnesium we should be getting but nobody's talking about that because they're just still following the RDA that was published in in 1997. So you have this dual pronged problem where the lab ranges are not calibrated for health, they're calibrated for avoiding disease. Those are two different things. And so, you know, you pointed out in functional medicine, we use the tighter range that's more calibrated to promoting health. And then the second problem is that the ranges, when they're based on the RDA, the RDA is often out of date and, was, and, the, and the RDA was only ever um, determined, it was determined in World War II, like as a way of, of, of figuring out how we could feed soldiers and, and enable them to keep fighting in the war. It was not like what is, it was not trying to answer the question, what's the optimal amount, which again is what we should be most concerned with.
0: Who dictates how often those ranges should be reestablished? I mean, it clearly sounds like since 1997—that's a while. So, like, how does that work?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a government office for sure. I'm not sure which one it is, and I'm not office. sure how they make. Yeah, how they how they make those decisions. But you know, I, I'm sure you've seen this, Jacqueline. The, with the the office that handles the dietary guidelines. You know, so, some very high percentage of people on that committee are, have conflicts of interest with industry and, you know, so you get so many, there's so many problems with the way it's done right now from just lack of resources and, you know, maybe not the staff or, or um, infrastructure to be able to update these things more frequently, um, which is nothing nefarious necessarily. It's just the way that it is. And then uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got, the people who are writing the dietary guidelines that are, you know, advisors for Kraft and Nestle and, you know, all of these companies that have a vested interest in not, you know, in a, in a diet that promotes processed, you know, foods are healthier than whole foods because the whole foods have saturated fat in them or, you know, whatever the case may be. So it's, it's, yeah. it's a situation where we're just not getting the information we need generally uh, to support good choices.
0: It's crazy. I'm sure you've heard of the recent fiasco where influencers were paid off by I forget yep. which companies. It's crazy. It's truly crazy.
1: I wrote about that. Yeah, that's business as usual. You know, I, I've been to some of these conferences, Jacqueline. And um, in fact, I was at Expo West uh, last year or earlier this year, which is a it's a natural natural products conference, right? So it's it's supposed to be like, you know, what's the latest stuff in organic, whole foods, nutrient-dense foods and stuff like that. And, you know, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was a little bit surprised to see like Nestle and I think Coca-Cola, you know, some other com- big food companies like that, not only did they have booths at the conference, but they were, they were presenting content. They were allowed to present content. They were on panels talking about like, you know, what we need to do to create healthier diet, et cetera. And I'm just like, there is no incentive. These companies are not, uh, shouldn't even be part of that conversation. They're the problem, not the solution. I, you know, I, I understand to some extent what the perspective is there. Like we have to include them, you know, blah, blah, blah. But no, we need a forum where we can just talk clearly about the issues <laughs> with our system, and to be able to, you know, to start making different choices that don't involve those companies at all. Because the reality is, they're never Nestle's never gonna never gonna go into a supermarket and see Nestle broccoli, you know, <laughs> or, or you know grass fed meat from Nestle. I mean, I certainly hope not. But just the nature of their products that they sell preclude them from being part of a healthy diet, generally.
0: Yeah, this could be a whole conversation, but yeah. conflict of interest is is such a problem that has literally infiltrated everything, even from studies, right? When people read Absolutely. studies, even on PubMed, who are they sponsored by, right? Like that will obviously affect what the outcome is. I mean,
1: if- Well, two thirds of medical research is sponsored by Big Pharma, two thirds. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And as uh, Upton Sinclair once said, it's difficult to get someone to understand something when their salary is dependent on them not understanding it. You know, it's, it's a big problem.
0: And with that too, though, not to get off topic, but how do you discern fact from fiction, you know, with that statistic that two thirds are sponsored by big pharma? How do you trust even PubMed?
1: Well, you need training and research methodology for one. And, um, you know, it's it's not it's not the case. It doesn't. It's a priori not true that because a uh, a study is industry sponsored, it's unworthy or not trustworthy. It certainly should raise. You know, it 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 should elevate the level of scrutiny that is applied to that study, and you should be paying much closer attention to the methods and make sure that the data that are presented. Actually, match the conclusion, um, which is uh, strangely enough, very often not the case. Like, the authors will not even, um, you know, if you read the discussion section or the conclusion of the paper, that doesn't even match the data and uh, the tables that the authors have presented. And they know that a lot of people don't even look at those tables, they'll just read the discussion or the abstract. But, you know, there's there's two pieces here. One is the underlying data. Like if the researchers are fudging the underlying data, there's little that the end reader can do about that, you know, because it's beyond most people's capacity to know if the that data from the experiment is actually being fudged. That tends to be a rare problem. What's more common is that, the, the, you know, shady statistical methods or creative interpretations of the data or just poorly designed study in the first place. So, for example, a lot of nutrition studies are based on food frequency questionnaires, which are notoriously inaccurate, where you ask someone what they ate, ate, you know, three months ago, (laughs) and they're, they're supposed to remember and tell you with accuracy what they ate. Or things like healthy user bias, where... Um, A study might say red meat increases the risk of cancer, but they don't control for other confounding factors. It's generally in the general population, people who eat more red meat also tend to smoke more cigarettes, drink more alcohol, eat fewer fruits and vegetables, exercise less, lower socioeconomic status. And all those factors actually, you know, are closely correlated with cancer and the researchers don't do a good job of controlling for those confounding variables. So all of these things are more are more common problems with studies. And the good news is that if you have, if you're trained in research methodology and you have a keen eye and you know how to look for these problems, you can generally identify them. So a good example of this would be uh, a recent study that's made the headlines over the past week on type on red meat apparently increasing the risk of type 2 diabetes. And this was published by Walter Willett, um, who's been trying to make this argument for his entire career. You know, he's a plant-based diet advocate and a, a hater of meat and saturated fat and just old school in in the, in the sort of low-fat plant-based diet paradigm. And um, the study was just garbage. It was like so riddled with um, – Issues that Dr. Zoe Harcomb published a critique of it that's worth checking out. But, you know, it was healthy user bias, food frequency questionnaires, um, all kinds of data issues. And the problem, as you know, Jacqueline, is that the vast majority of people are just going to see the headlines. And they are not going to see the follow-up critique critiques and if they do they might not read them because they tend to be pretty detailed and go into you know like a lot of scientific concepts that most people don't understand and i wonder at this point like walter willett is a smart guy and the researchers on those papers are smart people they know they're trained they know about those issues I wonder if they just publish these papers at this point because they know they're going to generate a lot of media headlines. They know that most people don't understand, the, won't understand the critiques and the critiques won't get nearly as much media attention. And so all they really need to do is publish a study that's at least, you know, that they can get through the peer review process, which in and of itself is a problem, that that was peer reviewed and allowed to be published, but that's a whole different <laughs> topic. And they know that as long as they get it published, it's going to generate media attention and their goal is going to be accomplished. It doesn't even need to be a good quality study. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, you know, I think that's probably what's happening at this point. It's really super depressing, but that's where we're at.
0: And even too, in the context of a clinical setting with a doctor and a patient, particularly oncologists in my own experience, will choose to use certain terminology when explaining the results of clinical trials that oftentimes present cancer drugs in a more positive light than they really should be. So for example, using the term progression-free survival versus overall survival, right? Those two words have very different meanings, again, which just lends to the fact that you truly need to be your own advocate and educate yourself as much as you can when it comes to accurately understanding research findings. And Also to Chris, I mean, I have not been in this space nearly as long as you have, but one thing that I've started to observe, and it may sound counterintuitive, but I think the experts to really trust in the health space are those who are actually unsure of themselves, right? So that includes people who use nuance, use words like Maybe, probably, they rarely speak in absolutes. They add context. Um, They don't use fear-based language. You know, these are the people that are open to be proven wrong and who change their stance in accordance with new literature or new science that continues to evolve.
1: Well, that's the way to look at it because I've said this for years, but the history of science is the history of most people being wrong about most things most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's just the reality, and if and so there's only one of two possibilities: either we have figured it all out, and now for the first time ever, we're not <laughs> wrong about things, or we're still wrong about a lot of things, and we still have a lot to learn. So I I tend to believe that the latter is a much more likely scenario. That you know we look back with disdain on. Um, people 100 years ago and say you know how foolish they they were and how little they knew and yet we expect that people 100 years from now are not going to look back at us with that that same lens i think they probably will and we will realize that we were wrong about things we thought we were right about so nevertheless though i think you can look you i've always used A kind of three-legged stool if you will uh, or three lenses to look uh, to evaluate claims through and i think when you use all three of these you can get closer to the truth and one is in the ancestral lens like what what is uh, what is true from an evolutionary perspective about human beings and what assumptions or hypotheses can we generate about a species appropriate diet for human beings like and you can look at other animals too like if you feed a cat a lot of grains and and foods like that their cat is going to get sick because cats are carnivores <laughs> in nature they only eat meat and you feed a carnivore foods that are not meat or animal products, they're not going to have optimal health. That's just a biological truth that any zoologist would tell you. Um, Humans also have species-appropriate diets. We We have a broader range of foods that we can handle because we have different anatomy and physiology, and we're not true carnivores. But there's still only a range of foods that we know of that work for humans. And believe it or not, cheese doodles and super big gulps and um you know fried foods fried in soybean oil are not part of that evolutionary template so we can with reasonable certainty assume that those foods are not good for us and then we can take that assumption and look at the second pillar which is modern research you know these are All of the the research that we have, the studies that are published, and as we just discussed, there are some problems there, too. You need to look at it with a critical eye, but it doesn't mean we throw it all out. There's still plenty of good research that can guide us in the right direction. And then the third rule for me as a clinician is how how does it work with real people in the real world, like when the rubber actually meets the road? Uh, For example, weight loss. Like... There's lots and lots of debate about whether low-fat diet is better than low-carb, et cetera. I can tell you just from my own personal experience working with thousands of patients and training thousands of healthcare practitioners who've worked with thousands of patients that in practice, a low-carbohydrate diet is generally more effective. Are there exceptions to that rule? Of course, but I'm saying generally more effective. And so when you put together those three elements— you can at least move closer to the truth. And um, as long as we hold that lightly and stay open to changing our minds when new information comes available, then I think that's the best approach.
0: You advocate for a kind of modified paleo diet. In fact, I've almost finished reading your book, Your Personal Paleo Diet, which is wonderful. I'll link it in the show notes. But could you elaborate a bit more on that move from, a paleo diet to paleo template. And is that the most ideal or optimal diet from a nutrient density standpoint?
1: The distinction there is that, you know, paleo diet would completely strict diet that eliminates, you know, even things like full fat or fermented dairy products, occasional dark chocolate, occasional glass of wine, all legumes, all grains. Um, that can, that Extremely strict version, let's say a Whole30 uh, type of diet can be very therapeutic and helpful, but I don't think it's necessary for most people to restrict their diets to that extent for the long term. Uh, Some people actually do very well with full-fat fermented dairy products like kefir or yogurt or or ghee or butter or cream. Um, They may be able to tolerate uh, white rice or quinoa or other types of uh, grains, especially when they're soaked or, or um, sprouted. They, they may do just fine with occasional dark chocolate, occasional glass of wine. They might be fine with soaked and properly prepared legumes on occasion. And those foods are all have benefits. You know, legumes are uh, can be really helpful for feeding the beneficial gut bacteria um, dairy pro- products are still the most bioavailable source of calcium and also conjugated linolenic acid, and, you know, which is a unique type of fatty acid that has metabolic benefits. And so we don't necessarily want to remove those foods from the diet completely unless, unless we have to. And there can be a reason to do it therapeutically for a short period of time. Um, but I do think that that paleo template that I just described is a great starting place for many people because it's the most nutrient-dense diet. And here we are talking about nutrient density. If you look at uh, the most nutrient-dense foods, you have organ meats and shellfish are at the top of the list. That's often very surprising for people. Um, and then you have like muscle meat, uh, typical cuts of beef, uh, particularly that people would eat. Not so much chicken and poultry is is further down the list. Um, you've got things like egg yolks, egg um, you've got full fat dairy, you've got fresh fruits and vegetables, particularly dark leafy greens are, are especially nutrient dense. And then, you know, much, much lower down the list, you have things like nuts and seeds and whole grains. Uh, and then at the very bottom of the list, you have white flour and, um, you know, seed oils and sugar, which are basically devoid of nutrients, but super high in calories. So, um if, we, if the goal of the diet, which I think it is, is to maximize the nutrient density of every bite of food you put into your mouth, then a paleo type of diet that I just described that includes organ meats and shellfish and, and maybe full-fat dairy if you tolerate it and eggs and fresh fruits and vegetables and, and, and nuts and seeds and things like that is going to be um, one of the most nutrient-dense diets that you can eat.
0: I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Dr. Gundry. And for listeners, he essentially advocates that the phytic acid in legumes and like some seeds and nuts can decrease the absorption of nutrients like iron or magnesium. What are your thoughts on that? And I know that you mentioned there are quote unquote certain scenarios, right, where you may not want to include those foods, which I'm assuming may be in someone who has a leaky gut, for example. But overall, what is what is your take on his
1: ideology. I'm not a big fan. I think it's there's a lot of cherry picking of research that is happening there. And the reality is human beings have been eating foods with lectins, which is another argument that he makes against um, a lot, not just beans and legumes, but all kinds of vegetables and fruits and other foods that normally have lectins. We've been eating those foods since before we were human. And I don't think a moderate amount of lectins are a problem for, or, or phytic acid are problems for healthy people. Um, now, our, uh, and, and there's a few reasons for that. You know, number one, cooking foods destroys lectins. Um, phytic acid, if, if when I said properly prepared grains and legumes, that's, when, that's what proper preparation refers to. So historically and traditionally, legumes were always soaked and sometimes even sprouted before they were consumed. And our, our ancestors somehow knew that that was important without knowing what, what the heck a lectin is or phytic acid is. They just figured it out through trial and error. And what happens when you soak and sprout a legume or a grain is you break down the phytic acid and really dramatically reduce it so that you can consume those foods that you know without phytic acid uh, being present. And, or at least present at a much lower amount. Um, for people who are healthy, you know, they might be able to consume those foods without worrying too much about that. For people who have sensitive digestive system, you know, disrupted gut microbiome, leaky gut, autoimmune disease, whatever, they may need to avoid those foods entirely, at least for a period of time until their gut heals, or They may need to just be very attentive to how they prepare the foods, you know, so proper, you know, soaking the grains for at least 12 to 18 hours or legumes for 12 to 18 hours, usually in a acid medium. So like putting a teaspoon of kefir in there or lemon juice or something like that to help with the breakdown Um, and then rinsing them very well before you cook or prepare them. So um, I don't think there's very, really any research uh, of substance to, to suggest that people who are healthy need to avoid any foods with lectins in them because you'd be cutting out a huge number of otherwise very healthy and nutrient-dense foods.
0: Speaking of cutting out a huge array of nutrient-dense foods, what are your thoughts on the carnivore diet, Chris? And I know that this is like the ultimate elimination diet while I think it could be very helpful short term for addressing, you know, autoimmune disorders, to your point earlier, I think any super restrictive diet long term is not healthy. So I'm just curious what your take is on that.
1: Yeah, that's basically what I think, and I've said this in a lot of different contexts. I've had I've been on Rogan five times, and he always asked me about this because it's such a big trend. Um, I think it's a, a sort of a way of extending the benefits of fasting. So uh, there's a saying in medicine that fasting is the cure for all disease, and that's maybe a, an exaggeration, but it's it's true that fasting can be enormously therapeutic in, for all so many different conditions. But the problem is fasting is also a cure for life if you do it long enough, right? You, can, you know, we, we can't fast forever. Um, when you only eat animal products, animal products are digested pretty high up in the small intestine. Uh, and there's not a lot of residue left over to reach the colon and there's no fiber at all uh, or, or very little low amount of fiber so that doesn't reach the colon what i think is happening is there so you're starving the uh harmful gut bacteria that may have proliferated in in contexts like autoimmune disease or many other conditions that are characterized by a disrupted gut microbiome but unlike a water fast you're also providing the body with a lot of essential nutrients. I mentioned before how meat and organ meats are among the most nutrient dense foods we can eat. So following a carnivore diet, you, you kind of get the best of both worlds for a short period of time, at least where you're getting a lot of bioavailable nutrients, but you're also giving your gut a profound rest and maybe enabling, you know, leaky gut to heal and rebalancing microbiome and things like that. So I think it, it can be enormously therapeutic in the short term. The problem is, over the long term, let's look at look at it through those three lenses. Like over the long term, from an evolutionary perspective, we don't have a single example of a traditional culture that we know of that ate an exclusively animal-based diet for a long period of time. There are certainly some cultures like the Inuit, um, the Maasai, around the world that tended more towards significantly higher proportion of animal foods in their diet, especially at certain times a year, but it wasn't exclusively animal products. So we don't really have an evolutionary template that we can look at and say, oh, well, look, that works. We know we've got an example of this, of people living a long time and being healthy, doing that for a long period of time. The second thing is just looking at it through the modern biochemical lens. There are a lot of nutrients that are almost exclusively found in plant foods that are not found in animal foods. And particularly, we're talking about phytonutrients and then things like vitamin C. Um, potassium is another example. You know, can, can you thrive without these nutrients for a period of time? Yes. Can you thrive without them for a long period of time? I'm skeptical of that. You know, I won't say no because going back to what we said earlier like there's a lot we still don't understand Um, so i would you know reserve the possibility that that's true but i don't i think based on what we know currently about nutrient needs and human physiology it's not likely that that will people will be able to do that for an extended period without uh, a significant proportion of those people experiencing some harm and then the third is just my own clinical experience with these diets where what often happens is people do them, they start off feeling really great. It can even be just almost life-changing for them, You know, people who are essentially bedridden, who are then able to um, live an almost normal life, which is why I think the diet has gained so much popularity. It can be a a dramatic difference. But then over, over a period of time, and that can vary from a few months to a few years, I start to see uh, typically not a lot of health problems um, re- either come back the same problems that they had before or different problems that might be related to nutrient deficiency or other changes that are happening biologically. So that's my assessment.
0: That makes complete sense to me. And going back to like actual testing for nutrient deficiency. So I mean, some nutrient deficiencies like iron, for example, right? Like that can present with muscle weakness or a brain fog or headaches. But let's say a patient doesn't necessarily present, you know, with any physical symptoms of what you might recognize as a nutrient deficiency. How do they go about testing on their own if that's even possible? Is that something you recommend patients could again, like do on their own if they're not necessarily working with a functional practitioner?
1: It's very challenging, even if you are working with a functional practitioner, unfortunately. And the reason for that is that different nutrients require different methodologies to test them accurately. And some nutrients can be tested in the serum. Some need to be tested inside of the red blood cell. Some actually need to be tested in the tissue themselves. Like magnesium is a good example, where less than one half of 1% of magnesium is in the serum at any given time because it's typically stored in, intracellularly inside of the cell, inside of the tissues. So to get a really accurate read on magnesium, you have to do a buccal swab, like a cheek swab and get actual tissues and and then do an intracellular magnesium test. There is some correlation between intracellular magnesium levels and, and red blood cell and serum levels, but it's not perfect. So Another example would be selenium. Um, The the method that researchers often use to assess selenium is toenails. That's not really (laughs) something that people can do at home or even at a nearby lab. Uh, Hair selenium will be more accurate as well than blood selenium. Iodine, notoriously difficult to assess. Um, Vitamin K2, we don't even really have a commercially available method of assessing it right now. Um, and you see these nutrient panels from like, um, well, I, I won't mention particular labs that claim to be able to assess, you know, all nutrients just with one methodology, either in the blood or in the urine or whatever. Those are not evidence-based. Um, you know, they can be helpful in some cases if you understand their limitations, but as a clinician, if I, that was kind of one of my deepest wishes. If I could wave magic wand it would be like, one test that could assess nutrient status of all the essential vitamins and minerals and even phytonutrients, such a test does not exist. So you really have to put it together in a piecemeal basis. Um, you know, you do. You can do an iron panel plus ferritin plus the CBC and get pretty close to assessing iron status. Sometimes you need to add markers like soluble transferrin receptor to get another important layer of information for vitamin d it's pretty straightforward luckily you know you just run 25d and you're good but like i said for vitamin k2 for a bunch of other nutrients it's much more problematic so this is a challenge that we're facing and it does make it harder for the end user uh, to really assess where they're at on the nutrient spectrum so instead of testing i often recommend just the low-tech method of understanding what increases and improves nutrient status and then what decreases nutrient status. And then the more factors you have that increase nutrient status going for you, the the less likely it is you're deficient. The more factors you have that decrease nutrient status, the more likely you're deficient. And that's kind of the closest that most of us are going to get.
0: I've also heard that for the most part, our bodies will eliminate anything in excess that we don't use, right? So for example, if someone consumes too much vitamin C, my understanding is that it just gets excreted through urine. But are there any particular nutrients that people can over-supplement? And I mean, even too, Chris, in the case of vitamin D, for example, there's been a lot of cancer patients, particularly, that supplement with thirty to 50,000 IUs of vitamin D a day. So what is, what is your take on all of that? Yeah,
1: you can definitely overdo it. And it is true with water-soluble nutrients like B vitamins and vitamin C, it's harder to get yourself into trouble, although you still can with some B vitamins. With fat-soluble nutrients like vitamin A and vitamin D, um, there definitely are toxicity ranges. Also selenium, as a mineral has a pretty narrow range optimal range and if you're lower than that it's problematic and if you're higher than that it's problematic so um you know without going into detail on the toxicity threshold of each nutrient i would just say that an iron is another problem too you know iron deficiency is the big is uh, of course, a much bigger problem world, worldwide. Over 2 billion people suffer from it. It's still rampant even in the United States and other developed countries. But iron overload is an underrecognized problem that contributes to the burden of disease. And that it's the most common genetic polymorphisms in North America are polymorphisms that affect iron storage and can lead to excess iron storage and iron overload. So, I've seen many, many people in my practice, both men and women, it's more common in men, but I see women too that have high iron levels rather than low iron levels. And that can cause everything from fatigue to on the kind of milder end of the scale to infertility to dementia, Alzheimer's, and death. You know, untreated hemochromatosis, which is the most aggressive form of iron storage, is fatal. It's not recognized and treated. So you definitely can get yourself into trouble um, with taking, you know, eat, either eating too much of a nutrient or supplementing too much for too long. And uh, it's it's something that we, you know, that I think a lot about and pay a lot of attention to, of course, um, in my profession and as the owner of a supplement brand. So that's, you know, one of the, the ways that, one of the things that I've thought a lot about as a formulator is what's the, what are the sort of optimal doses for supplements for most people or for nutrients for most people that will help to meet the daily nutrient needs um, but be less likely to cause problems in the long term. So, for example, in our multivitamin, I didn't include iron at all uh, because it, it requires an individual approach to supplementation. Um, and you know same thing with iodine and same thing with calcium Uh, you can get yourself in trouble with all of those and so rather than include them in multi we just left them out and i'm you know would advise people to if they need iron to they can take our organ product or they can take something else to meet that need but including it for everybody is is problematic
0: Interesting. I'm a big fan of that line. It's called ADAPT Naturals. So I'll be including links to everything in the show notes, but you just answered my question. I was going to ask if you were an advocate of a multi, um, which clearly you are, but while omitting certain things. And are you a fan of lipospheric supplements, Chris? I feel like this is also another all the rage topic that, you know, touts increased bioavailability and and all of that. So what's your take on that?
1: Uh, Liposomal forms can certainly increase bioavailability of some nutrients, but they're not necessary for a lot of nutrients. Um, you know, it, there's always a, a, a compromise between um, cost and effectiveness. And in some cases, when nutrients are, are very, have very poor bioavailability, then you have to take steps to improve the bioavailability. So, uh, using a liposomal form is one of those steps it's certainly not the only one uh, and in fact sometimes not the best one like so for curcumin for example um it, it needs the the most bioavailable forms actually make it water soluble um rather than fat fat soluble it's curcumin is hydrophobic and the means technically afraid of water <laughs> uh, and the, the body is, our blood is mostly water, right? So if you have a, a hydrophobic molecule, it's going to be often poorly absorbed and, and not available systemically. And so the best curcumin preparations will will make, will make uh, transform curcumin into a water-soluble compound to make it more bioavailable. Uh, nutrients like B vitamins, it's more about the form that you take than whether it you know, than the preparation. And I I've never heard of liposomal B vitamins. Well, I have heard of them, but they're not common because they're not, it's not necessary. All you need to do is to convert it, to take it in a form that mimics the form that we get from food. So let's, let's take uh, folate, B9. So you can take 5-MTHF, which is 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate. That's the most active form of folate that we convert all other forms of folate into in our bodies. So if you just take methyl tetrahydrofolate, you're taking it in the form that you eventually want it to end up in, you're going to absorb it and be able to utilize it well. Similarly, methylcobalamin is the most active form of, of B12. And if you take that form, you'll absorb it and do well instead of cyanocobalamin, which is a less active synthetic form. And so... Oftentimes, bioavailability is just more about what's the most absorbable, utilizable form. And the answer, just in the same way that you can't use the same type of test to assess for all different nutrients, you can't use the same type of deliverability mechanism like liposomal for all nutrients and expect that to work well. Um, The last thing I would say about that is Some nutrients are just generally pretty well absorbed without doing a whole heck of a lot to them. And so it doesn't necessarily make, it's a question of where you're going to get the most bang for your buck, right? Like vitamin C, ascorbic acid is actually pretty well absorbed by most people. Almost all the studies that have been done indicating the benefits of vitamin C have been done with ascorbic acid. And if you're going to spend a lot more money on a liposomal form of a particular nutrient, it probably shouldn't be vitamin C. Because the bioavailability of vitamin C, even in the simple, you know, ascorbic acid form is pretty good. So, you know, there might be other issues with it, but bioavailability is not one of them. So it's complex, right? (laughs) It's like, there's a lot to consider.
0: I'll ask you one question, Chris. And then in my mind, as you're chatting, there's like 10 other questions that form. Um, But no, it's definitely a very complex area. But speaking of, of bioavailability, so... Does the time of day you take a supplement improve bioavailability? Does taking supplements with food improve it? Should you split them up? Should you take them all at one time? I mean, again, like that's such a nuanced area where some folks are like, take your prebiotic in the morning. What what is your take on that?
1: Well, yeah, it totally depends on the supplement. So as we were just saying, some nutrients are fat soluble, and that means they are going to be much better absorbed in the presence of fat. And those include the fat-soluble vitamins are probably the, the best example of those, like vitamins A, D, E, and K2. Um, you should generally be taking with a meal, and preferably a meal that contains fat, because you're going to absorb those better than than if you don't do that. And there's lots of other examples of, of that too. Um, other nutrients are better absorbed on an empty stomach, because um, food or nutrients in food might compete with their absorption or because um, of the action, the biological action of that particular nutrient works better um, when, when the stomach isn't full. Um, and, and so I think the, the presence or, or absence of food when you take supplements and the type of mac- nutrient, like whether fat is in the meal or not in the meal, is way more important than the time of day uh in most cases in terms of like dosing um if someone has this you you know in some cases if you're trying to maintain a, a consistent blood level of a nutrient over the entire day then it's important to break it up into divided doses right for some nutrients that makes a difference other nutrients it doesn't make a difference at all like for vitamin d for example you don't really you don't need to do divided dosing. In fact, you don't even need to do daily dosing. Most studies have shown that just taking a weekly dose of vitamin D that's calculated for what you would get if you took it daily. You know, for example, if you're taking three thousand a day of uh, IU a day, you could just the same take twenty one thousand or twenty thousand once a week, and it, and it wouldn't make any difference.
0: Interesting. Um,
1: but there are other nutrients, like iron, might be an example where iron is actively Contributing to oxygen deliverability and cellular physiology on a real time basis. If you just took iron once a week, it, you would not experience the same benefits as if you took it daily, and it's probably even better to take smaller doses throughout the day. Um, and then on that note, smaller divided doses are typically easier to absorb. And if you have digestive issues, that's especially important. But even if you don't, like with a lot of nutrients, Uh, zinc is a good example there's a max amount that the body can absorb at any given time and if you take more than that amount you're just going to excrete the the rest and not going to use it so let's say you wanted to get 30 milligrams of zinc in your body a day it's way better to take it's generally better to divide that into at least two doses Um, three might be optimal but then you start Seeing some potential downside of people not being able to or remember to take supplements uh, three times a day, so there, again, there's a there's a sort of compromise between like convenience and practicality and what's optimal in in some cases.
0: Clearly, due to soil quality and a bunch of other factors, you know there is a need to supplement as we've just been discussing throughout this whole conversation with certain nutrients, but. This is a bit of a hypothetical question, Chris, but I was just thinking if we're constantly supplementing with different nutrients each day, is it possible that we may be in effect like training our bodies to not work as hard to extract those nutrients from our food because our bodies know that it's going to get them in supplement form? Does that even make sense?
1: it's an interesting question i don't know of any evidence to support that um i don't know that that like there's the body necessary i mean the body has to to work to absorb nutrients no matter what they're still um have to cross through the intestinal barrier and enter the systemic circulation and there will be some nutrients that are more bioavailable and some that are less but um I, I'm not aware of any mechanism by which the body would downregulate its ability to absorb nutrients from food um, uh, based on you know having them available as supplements. And you could also extend that to say, well, does eating only you know super bioavailable sources of nutrient in food, like like you know heme iron for example, is far more bioavailable in animal products? Does that decrease your body's ability to extract ferrous iron from plants which is which is less bioavailable i don't think that that's true i just think it's less your body's just generally less able to extract iron from plant foods because it's a different form of iron it has to break down the cell wall of the plants first because there's fiber and everything else and it's there's just more steps to go through essentially
0: yeah no that makes sense Again, questions that just come up to my mind when we're chatting about these topics. Um, And also too, Chris, can you touch on the importance of vetting the quality of supplements? Because I think that people do such a disservice to themselves in the sense of, you know, they'll go to Walgreens or CVS and purchase fish oil thinking they're helping their bodies, but in reality, they're actually doing more harm than good because of the quality of the fish oil, the added filler ingredients, you know, all of that. So can you maybe just touch on a few things that we should look out for when purchasing a high quality supplement?
1: Yeah. Yeah. it's a huge problem. The supplement industry is big. There's a lot of money uh, in it now. And um, whenever that ha- in any industry, whenever there's money to be made, you're going to see a lot of shenanigans. That's just how capitalism works for better and for worse. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have, have heard of the problems like with counterfeit supplements and uh, being sold on Amazon. That is a, a big issue. Amazon has, I think, done a better job recently in cracking down on that and trying to make inroads so that people are sure that what they're buying on Amazon is actually legitimate, what it says it is, you know? So so there's that level of just making sure that you're you're getting what you think you're getting and typically buying supplements directly from the manufacturer is a more reliable way to ensure that you're doing that. I mean, I use Amazon a lot. I know how convenient it is. I get that, but I don't buy, buy my own supplements on Amazon. Um, And I mean, I like, I don't mean adapt Naturals supplements, but like for years before I launched this brand, I didn't buy supplements on Amazon. I would get them directly from the manufacturer. In, In my case, I was a distributor, so that was easy to do. But That's one level of just like making sure what you think you're taking is actually what you're taking. Then the next level down is like, are you taking a high quality product? Um, That's probably a topic for an entire podcast um, because there's so much that goes into it. And
0: We'll chat again. (laughs)
1: Yeah. It depends on the product, of course. So for example, like with the multivitamin there's a lot a lot of multis use just the cheapest synthetic ingredients and a lot you know uh, at doses that are not very likely to move the needle and not all you know not all synthetic ingredients are bad for like I said ascorbic acid generally works really well for people it's affordable it allows you to get a much higher dose than you can get if you are only taking a whole food form of vitamin C um, most forms of vitamin D are Pretty straightforward. They're they lanolin. They're um, extracted from sheep's wool, and, it, and it's a process that is done in the lab. You know, you don't have someone going out grabbing hold of a sheep and you know, scraping off the lanolin from the sheep's wool, and then turning that. It's not a handmade thing. It's made in the lab, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's a nutrient that our body can recognize and is able to process and utilize. But then there are other situations where you do want the whole food form. And like I I mentioned folate and methylcobalamin before, that sometimes like with selenium, you can use a yeast-based form of selenium that's more bioavailable than selenomethionine. So you kind of have to know where it matters and where it doesn't. And that's my job as as a clinician and a formulator for Adapt Naturals is to make that determination. Like we often get people who write in and say, I noticed there's some, you know, synthetic nutrient. Why didn't you use all whole food nutrients? Well, if we put 400 milligrams of whole food vitamin C in the multi, you would be taking eight capsules a day instead of four, just for that one change, and you'd be paying probably twenty dollars more per bottle just for that one change. And if you extend that wow. to every single nutrient, it would be. 18 capsules a day and $225 or something just for your multivitamin. And people don't understand that, which of course they how would they? Then it's not their job or their, their field. Or
0: yeah.
1: Um, so it's my job as the formulator and a clinician to know where where is it critical that we use food-based naturally occurring ingredients? Where is it less important to do that? you know, based on the research and and just basic understanding of biochemistry and physiology. And then how do you put that all together into a product that will give people uh, phenomenal results, but be at a, still at a relatively affordable price, point, you know, or something that's practical for, for people to be able to do. Um, So I would say it looks, it comes down to like choosing from the best source, choosing reputable brands. I, I, tend to gravitate towards brands that were formulated by a clinician or someone who has experience in the medical field, because so many, a lot of supplement brands are just started by entrepreneurs who want to make money at this point. And they don't really have the connection to what they've never treated patients. They don't have a medical background. They don't know what really works and doesn't work. And they make choices that are more based on maximizing profit and helping people. So that's, those are probably the most important factors for me.
0: I definitely see that in the protein powder space too. Quick side note too, Chris, while I have you here, what are your thoughts on protein powders? and is there a specific type that you I mean that you yourself use or that you advocate patients that you work with to use?
1: I take collagen every day um, because I think even you know, Historically, if you look at ancestral intake of protein and animal products, it was pretty balanced between methionine, which is the protein that you find in like muscle meats like steak or chicken, um, and collagen. Um, collagen and, and um, methionine are both type protein, but they're very different. In protein, they have a very different effect on the body. Um, collagen is very important, as I'm sure most people have heard for the skin, hair, nails, muscles, joints, glycine is a major amino acid in collagen. It's and that's a uh uh constituent of the cells in the gut, so it's very important for gut health. Most people eat too much lean protein and not enough collagen. And so I think collagen can make a lot of sense for folks, especially as you're getting older. Um I think pr- protein powder, like just whey protein or beef protein powder, which has kind of seen uh, a rise in popularity in the last several years, can certainly play a role and be helpful in, in some cases. If you like one of those might be an elder, a person who's getting older who has trouble, they're just lower appetite or the poor digestion. They just can't eat the volume of protein and whole foods that they need to support. Healthy, you know, staying strong and maintaining muscle and bone mass as they get older. I think protein powder makes a ton of sense in that situation. I think for athletes or people who are, who are you know, working out a lot and trying to achieve certain fitness goals, who need a much higher protein intake, uh, protein powder can make sense. Uh, for people who are trying to lose weight, uh, a, a very high protein, low carbohydrate diet is one of the most effective strategies, and uh, it can be hard to attain those levels of protein intake um just from whole foods alone uh, in some cases so protein powder can play a role there so i it it, as always my my answer to all these questions as you've gathered is it depends (laughs) and it, it depends on the circumstances um but yeah in in the i think most people will benefit from collagen a smaller percentage of people benefit from you know a beef protein powder or whey protein powder or something like that
0: I'm glad to hear. Does Add Up Naturals have a future protein line coming up at any point?
1: We, we actually we have a, a very exciting, unique collagen product that's going to be coming out next year, probably in May. And I can't say much about it now, but it will be, I think, uh, a game changer in the collagen marketplace. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, we don't currently have plans for like a beef protein or weight protein but you know we're it's still pretty early days so you never know
0: awesome well that's very exciting about the collagen one we will have to have you back on next year to chat about that All Right. well chris i do want to be conscious of your time this has been an incredibly insightful and comprehensive conversation truly truly excited to share this with listeners and where can they find you
1: so my uh, personal Brand and content site is chriscrosser.com. And there's 1,300 articles, free articles, and 13 free ebooks. my podcast, lots of um, great educational information there. So so that's where you can find my work in general. And then the supplement line is adaptnaturals.com.
0: My last question for you, Chris, and this is my favorite one to ask all of my interviewees, is what does being well and strong mean to you?
1: My favorite definition of health, which I'm going to extend to being well and strong, is from Moshe Feldenkrais, who is the founder of the Feldenkrais Method. And he said that true health is the ability to live your dreams. So for me, that's what it's all about. It's like I want health to enable me to live the kind of life that I want to live, which for me means showing up um, as a fully present and engaged father and husband, and then being able to contribute to a healthier and happier world in all of the the ways that I do that professionally, and and of course to pursue my own passions and interests, and to note to ideally feel like I'm able to do the things that I want to do in that regard because I'm not limited by uh, my health. So so that's what it means to me. It doesn't mean perfect health. Meaning I don't think that that's attainable for most people, but it means that supports our ability to live our dreams.
0: I love that. Well, Chris, thank you again for all the incredible work that you do in this space. You've obviously impacted thousands and thousands of, of people, myself included. And I look forward to having you back on again soon.
1: Thank you, Jacqueline. I really enjoyed our conversation and be happy to come back.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to support the show, please subscribe, leave a rating and review and share it with others. Be sure to visit wellandstrong.com to access notes from the show and to stay current with new content. I'm so grateful you joined me. Be well and be strong.